Howdy, and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're joined by environmental psychologist Cambry Baker, and we're going to talk about climate resilience in communities and especially with children. We're going to be continuing a conversation that we had in the previous episode, so if you haven't listened to the previous one, you should definitely start there because a lot of things will make more sense in this episode. But, you know, do your own thing. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But uh, because we're here, uh, and because I'm Cedar Elkhart, that makes this the 21st Century Predator. Thanks for joining us today, and listen to Camry and I talk about cool stuff. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see for adults trying to teach these children with a solutions-based focus? We touched on this a bit before. Like I mentioned adults having that fear that they're going to make their kids worries even worse. Um, But this was actually something that I was really curious about as well and that I had a couple questions on in my research. Um, When I was surveying parents and teachers, I asked them what challenges were the most difficult for them when they had to think about talking to their kids about climate change. And there was a lot of varied responses, but the largest one was them just worrying that they would make their kids' feelings um, even worse. Um, Another challenge was that parents felt like they didn't know enough about climate change to be, you know, this expert that could talk to it about, talk about it with their kids. And That's kind of an interesting one. Um, We're always scared. Some of us are scared to talk about um, things when we don't feel like we know enough about them. But in this case with climate change, it's worse to not to say nothing because then your kid is feeling like they're not heard. So even if your response to your kids is, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think we should try to learn more about this together. That is huge, you know, that's showing your kid that you care, that their feelings are validated, and that you're going to help them. Um, And you're taking a step towards a solution, right? You're trying to learn more about it so that you can ideally take some sort of action. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that, like, that's a fear that parents have. So, um, there are more resources out, though, like, even... Even like in like newspapers, like the New York Times writes about climate resilience a couple times um, in the last like five years, um, specifically about parenting through climate change and says some of these things like, you know, give kids uh, space to talk about this. Um, But some other challenges that have come up for parents and teachers Teachers particularly are most concerned about not having time to talk about this with students because they feel like the curriculum they're bound to doesn't even usually mention climate change, which is true. Most state standards, at least in the U.S., um, fail to mention climate change, and if they do, they might talk about it for one lesson in a very scientific way that doesn't give room for emotions. Do you think that has anything to do with the public school system being designed to prepare kids for a capitalistic working world? Absolutely. I mean, the the lifestyle changes that we need to make to um, reduce carbon emissions are so in opposition to capitalism. 
So, um, yeah, I would absolutely agree. You know, it's, it's a threat to teach kids to think about this in a solution-oriented way because that would mean that we would have to entirely change our economic system, right? And that means totally different political system, I think, too. Um, different education system. All the systems are connected. You can't change one substantially without changing the others. And so, yeah, it's this big threat. Um, and I think that's the sticking point. And so, um, one thing though that's really cool that's happening is like kids worldwide are like they're recognizing that change needs to happen and they're doing things like school strikes um, and taking like direct action protesting for all of these things um, and I think that's what it takes it takes like a really substantial amount of our population um, through protesting to create those bigger changes mm-hmm. and these are kids that are you know they're older they're cognizant enough to to advocate for these strikes and for the changes in the system but what about these children who are younger who are now just starting to learn about climate change and don't understand um, the kind of the scale of the changes that are needed is that's up to parents and teachers right to teach them about that scale and to advocate for that system systemic change absolutely I think yeah I would never want to imply that it's the children's burden to to advocate for these changes I think children worldwide feel that it is they feel like they're being left with this problem for their generation so it's absolutely like the adults in the world right now um, including the boomers you know to be taking these actions Um, because if if you don't I mean I think we can already see it like there's so much resentment from children towards older generations my generation I feel resentment towards older generations for knowing about these problems and not taking action sooner. I think it's also really important to acknowledge like what parts of the world we're talking about here. Like there's so many more um, opportunities for children and adults in developed countries like the US to take the burden of advocating for social environmental change on Um, because I think it is a really big burden and We are so much more resource um, rich and so much and so disproportionately contribute to climate change that I think it's really important that we are setting that precedent. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the consumption ratio should directly correlate with the not even just the monetary resources, but manpower and woman power behind these new solutions the solutions for tomorrow that's a really like interesting way to think about it I haven't ever thought about it in those words Um, I don't like putting things in boxes in that way like saying absolutely yes I think as a rule of thumb that would be fair to say as we've discussed kids get the bulk of their information from parents and teachers So if we have parents or teachers listening, or if you are friends of parents or teachers, or you hope to one day be either of these things, what are some strategies or ideas or tactics or anything like that that these folks can use to help prepare children to make a better tomorrow? 
Well, as caretakers, I think the biggest tool we have to creating impact on kids' lives is how we model our own lives, how we live ourselves. And so for me as an educator, when I'm working with kids, um, like I've been trying to be more upfront about how I'm feeling in different moments. And if I'm teaching a lesson on maybe for example, drought or even if I'm just talking about water ecology, I might bring drought up and say, you know, this is a really hard thing for me to talk about because um, I'm worried or I'm scared or I, I really hope that everyone has enough water. You know, I hope that these animals are able to survive, those sorts of things. And by doing so, by being the first one to say that, you're in this like position of authority as a teacher and even as a parent and you can tell the kids just through that it's okay to talk about these things and I'll often get students who will say yeah I'm worried about that too or um, they might bring up something that seems totally unrelated to me but was clearly on their mind and it was enough to get them to share it Um, so they might say you know I'm really worried about my dog. My dog, my dog is eating all of this grass that's sprayed. You know, like it could be something like that. Um, so I think modeling through sharing your own fears is healthy. Um, I think it's equally healthy and important um, to model sharing about what you want in the world. Um, what you hope for and you know as a teacher I guess for me I try to be more explicit about things that I'm doing in my own life that feel aligned with what I care about so if I say man like yeah I'm really worried about our water and that really bothers me so I've started um collecting rainwater outside to water my garden for example and it makes me feel a little bit better because I know that I'm helping this problem um so sharing examples of things that you're doing that are like accessible for kids you know I'm not going to talk about how I'm lobbying my local government to like (laughs) change like water laws to this middle schooler because they'll be like oh wow you know I mean that might still be inspiring I think that still gives them like a feeling of like yeah adults do care but I think it's more important to like give them examples that are within their reach um because then they'll you know and encouraging them saying like you know have you ever thought about um have you ever thought about growing something do you, is that something you'd be interested in? I can help you. Here's how we can start together. Um, and so, yeah, for parents and teachers, I would really just say, like, even before you think about how to talk with your kids about climate change, you've really got to do the hard work of, like, looking at yourself, looking at what your fears are, looking at what you're passionate about, and looking at your life. And if those things aren't really aligning for you, 
then you have to do the even harder work of like asking why, you know, why are my actions not aligning with my values? And then you got to try and start modeling, you know, making those changes for your kids. And you can even talk about that. You can say, yeah, wow, like I really care about, you know, the, the forest around me being healthy. I love this forest, but sometimes I just get lazy and I drop my food scraps in there and the animals get at it. That's not cool, right? And I feel bad about that. I'm going to start trying to do better. Um, so I think it takes an extra step of like talking through those thoughts and actions out loud with kids. You might already be doing them. You might already be thinking about them. You might not, but it does take more intention to bring them up with kids because like we talked about before, kids might not bring them up because they might not think that they can. You and I both live in the United States and we both have water that is basically free. We have power that is dirt cheap. We can get pretty much anything we need with the right amount of money, uh, whether it's medical supplies or food or a car or a cell phone. And the systems are in place to keep those devices and industries alive. And I think if we were to step back to this time period that we keep discussing 150, 200 years ago, that seems like a utopia. Our houses have heating. They have this crazy thing called air conditioning. We have a water that comes into our house by a pipe and can freeze and be put into ice cubes. It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, with that being said, that's a highly consumptive lifestyle that obviously is not sustainable. Um, it wasn't sustainable to start with at any point, uh, but now it's gotten to the point where so many people are living a life like that. It's impacting those around the world that aren't living a lifestyle that is anything like that. Obviously that's not fair. Um, but what I'd like to give attention to with you now is what should tomorrow look like we've talked a lot about acknowledging these challenges of climate change with children some strategies to allow their caretakers to develop real strategies that are applicable and that will help these kids survive mentally and physically the challenges that are going to reach them in mm -hmm. the coming decades and probably even beyond that when they start to have children of their own so what does tomorrow look like and how do we get there? Oh, question of our time. Um, well, I think first, like when I, when I think about like, oh, what does the future look like? There are all those feelings of like, wow, we're going to lose so much, you know, like we're going to lose this cushy lifestyle and I'm, maybe I'm happy like this. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a lot of focus on what will we lose um, and what we've gained, you know, in these last 150 years, um, as our parents like to tell us, you know, ah, oh, you have it so easy. Um, and I just want to stop you for a second. That's kind of the point, isn't it? Isn't that the point of working hard when you have kids and, right. and building a house for them and being able to provide for them so that they have food? That's the point. And I, I never understood that why so many people when we were growing up we're telling us that you know you have it so easy that's the point that's why 
that's how humanity has survived <laughs> so long, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. somebody probably said, you know, when I was your age, we didn't have bronze. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Anyway, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're right. Um, and I think, like, we're, we have to acknowledge that things are going to get a little bit simpler, a little bit harder again um, in different ways. But I think part of what can help us get there is reframing again in our brains. Like, instead of thinking about all that we're losing, maybe we can think about things that we can also gain through these shifts. Um, For example, like right now, in our super materialistic culture, I feel like 85%, maybe 90% of the people around me are really disconnected from the world. And even like from me, like in a conversation, it's hard to connect with people. It's easy to feel alone. You know, our mental health is rapidly deteriorating. You know, people have so many chronic diseases. Like there are a lot of problems besides climate change here that are interconnected. And so if you think about creating this shift in how we live so that we're healing like the natural world around us like that is going to ultimately reflect back into our own health as a species as one part of this whole system and so maybe we lose a little bit of comfort but maybe we gain health and a feeling of agency and a feeling of the work that we're doing is meaningful you know if it's pretty hard to not feel like like you're doing a good thing if you're growing your own food and putting it on your own plate and eating it, you know? Like that, I think inherently, it feels joyful to me. And so, I don't know, it like does sound like this utopia to think that we can stop consuming so much and still be happy, or that we can change all of our economic, political, education, whatever systems and be sustainable um but if we don't you know start imagining what that might look like we're never going to have something to work towards to get there um and I don't think anyone has one vision of what that looks like yet like we we don't know we don't know how to be sustainable um I think the idea of just like reverting back 150 years is rather unrealistic. I don't think that's necessarily the solution. Um, There's a lot of things about 150 years ago that I don't want to go back to, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think we have learned some things as, as a culture, but, and we now have all of these technologies that can actually be allies in being more sustainable if we use them correctly, right? So... I almost feel like each of us has to kind of imagine like our own little piece of what this future looks like and start working towards that because I don't think any one of us can hold this whole image of what the future looks like. Like that to me feels so overwhelming to have all the answers, to know completely what this world is that I'm working towards. Um, Feels overwhelming, doesn't feel empowering. To me, like I wanna be able to picture you know, one, one piece of the puzzle and work towards that. Like I, 
I want to work on changing how kids learn in schools. So maybe I can create a school, right? Like that's my, my piece. Um, but I think shifting to this new world, like we're not just changing to live more sustainably. We're also addressing all of those other problems of health and social justice and things like that. So just reverting back wouldn't be enough. There's a lot of vocabulary and verbiages that are going around, that have been going around, that have changed since when we were kids. Um, I didn't really get any sort of education about climate change when I was in school and I, I went to public school. Um, and pretty much the extent of my environmental education there was basic earth sciences, you know, why lightning goes to metal. And as far as climate change goes, the extent of it was a short presentation on a TV screen of this gentleman who pulled two liter soda bottles out of the recycling and then made a ball out of newspapers and set up a bowling alley in a driveway out of this. And that, that was our reuse, upcycling, education. Um, and then on top of that, we just got the, the standard don't litter thing. Um, and so with that, we've seen in the last decade the, the main term change from global warming now to climate change to I've, seen, I've been seeing most recently the climate emergency, which... I tend to use a lot in my writing just because it calls a lot of attention to the fact that, uh, yeah, the climate's changing, but it's changing right now. You know, it's not. While, while you can zoom out to a, a big picture, multi-million year thing, it's happening right now and it is an emergency. Um, so with that being said, I'm wondering if you have anything specific that you'd like to call attention to as far as vocabulary and verbiages go. Hmm. Well, one thing that I have come up with so much when I'm researching or talking to people about the questions I'm asking as my research, which is very focused around hope, climate change hope, is people are like kind of skeptical about hope. They're like, well, doesn't hoping for us being able to solve climate change kind of ignore the fact that like it's pretty daunting task, like we might not be able to solve it? They're like, aren't you kind of ignoring how big the problem is when saying that we can hope and that it's reasonable that we can solve this? And so that's the question I've got quite a bit and thought about quite a bit because like, yeah, that's a really fair question. Like, how do you hope for something that's so unrealistic? How do you hope to get out of a climate emergency when it's so dire? And so... I guess I just want to like straighten out what I mean when I use that term. Like climate hope is not, it's not ignoring the severity of the reality we're in. It's taking full stock of where we are, looking it in the face. Um, and then it's like kind of, the way I think of hope is it's like this behavior, it's an action. You're choosing to have hope. You don't just have it. It's something that you can practice and choose to use, like a tool in your toolbox. And so when you choose to have hope in the face of climate change, you are saying this problem is really big and scary, 
but there is this future where we all live sustainably that I would like to see and I'm going to choose to take actions towards getting there and believe that it is possible as a way to like feel like my actions matter, like that there's still meaning left in living and in creating. And so it's, it's just kind of this psychological trick that we, we need a little bit for our brain. You know, we need to be able to think of this problem as solvable. Otherwise we're going to be, we're never going to be motivated to solve it. And so even while I'm holding the reality of our world, you know, on fire, I'm also holding this hope and practicing it and, and telling myself and others that it's possible. And I guess I got this example from a professor of mine once who, when someone told him or someone asked him, you know, why do you bother? Like, why do you bother trying to make the world better at this point in your life? You know, you're like 55. What's the point? And what he said was, if I'm out on a boat that capsizes in the middle of the sea, am I just, and I'm with my family, are we just going to sit there and accept our fate and drown? Or are we going to at least try to swim to shore? You know, if you can, if there's that possibility, that smallest chance, you have to try. And so that's how I think about hope. It's, it's just this practice of getting closer. Yeah, and I think that might tie directly into anger that a lot of people have. And um, as we wrap up here, I'd like to give a little bit of attention to that because it's so easy to, to blame previous generations and blame the people that are still consuming recklessly today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I do think that that ties directly into hope, but do you have any strategies or possible solutions for folks who might be feeling that sort of anger instead of hope Mm -hmm. yeah the I think the most effective strategy for me so far is also like not always the most accessible one but for me like working through all of that anger and that resentment towards older generations and towards people who deny climate change actively in your face um, and tell you what you're doing doesn't matter I think to counterbalance that, you have to be surrounded by people who are believing in climate change, right? Like are taking some actions um, to give you enough like sustenance to be able to practice that hope. Um, if you're not surrounded by, if you're not surrounded by, you know, positive actions, I think it'd be really, really challenging to practice that. Um, and so if you don't have a lot of people in your life who think like you do, then maybe a place to turn is, is the internet, you know, as tricky as that can be, there are a lot of really positive groups online, um, and, you know, different movements that you can join in and be a part of, whether that is, you know, the climate emergency phrase comes from this group Extinction Rebellion, and they're doing climate work all over the world. So I think it's really important that you do need to have people who are like-minded around you to, in your moments of anger 
and fear and worry and denial and all of those things for them to remind you that like they feel that too they're doing the work and most importantly you're doing it together but it's you're not alone in that um first thank you for the thoughtful questions uh and also just the space to talk about this um a lot of the ideas that I've talked about have been so inspired by that nonprofit I mentioned, Joyality. And so if you're interested in, in any of the things I've talked about, that's a good place to learn more. Um, they're just thejoyalityproject.org um, online, and they're also on Instagram. But um, they have a lot of resources there, too, that um, talk about some of these things that I've talked about before. And that's probably where I would send you. Awesome. Thank you. All right. I'll uh, see you at the end of the world, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> see you on the other side of this. <laughs> that was Cambry Baker for you. Thank you so much for joining us. I had a really, really great time interviewing you, and I, I learned a lot. And this interview made me feel extremely hopeful. And I hope that it made you feel that way, too. If you enjoyed this episode, please go check out some of the other ones. I got to interview lots of fun people for this project. And uh, thank you for joining me so far on this journey. I hope you're having a wonderful day, and I hope that you take care.